My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach and author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life, and you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Simon Alexander Ong is a personal development entrepreneur, coach, and public speaker. I first came across him when I saw one of his many videos he shares on YouTube and was immediately impressed with the clarity and focus that he brings to his message. Simon's clients are from all walks of life, but they share one trait. They all believe that the greatest investment you can make is in yourself. His work has seen him invited onto Sky News, BBC Radio London, and LBC, while Barclays UK featured him in a nationwide campaign asking him questions on how families could embrace better lifestyle habits. His insights have seen him featured in HuffPost, Forbes, Virgin, and The Guardian. He regularly speaks at organizations and keynotes for public events and conferences. Simon's debut book, Energize, is published by Penguin on the 21st of April, 2022. And if we've got our podcast scheduling right, then that's right around now. Energize has received endorsements from the likes of New York Times bestselling authors, Simon Sinek, Mary Forleo, Keith Ferrazzi, Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, and Dory Clark. I can't wait to be energized by this conversation. I'm sure you're feeling the same. Simon, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Gary, thank you so much for the very kind introduction and for having me on your show. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to it. So, so start off with telling us a little bit about your story. When I watch your talks and videos online, they're full of amazing insights and thoughts and ideas to help people find clarity in their own lives. But I'd love to start by finding out more about you and where this all started in your own journey. Sure, Gary. I grew up in the southeast of England in a county called Kent. And up until I attended university, I had always believed, mistakenly believed actually, that success was defined by my job title. Be a banker, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be an accountant. And so I pursued the banking route. After university, I started in the financial services sector in the middle of 2007, which was probably the worst time to, to begin in that industry because this was a year before the financial crisis swept across the planet. And just to make things a little more interesting, the first company that I started with was Lehman Brothers, which collapsed into administration just 14 months or so after, after I started as a graduate. And while, while at the time it was a scary period, you know, I remember talking to my dad and telling him that I'm going to hopefully get a promotion, move up in the company, and then decide in a couple of years where I wanted to move next. Unfortunately, that happened very quickly, and I had to make many of this, this, those decisions um, within 18 months of joining my, my first company. 
But in hindsight, Gary, it was one of those beautiful blessings in disguise because it kickstarted, for me, the longest journey that we humans make, uh, the inches from our heads to our hearts. And it is never an easy journey, but it is the most important and fulfilling that we will ever embark on. And so even though I stayed in the financial industry for nearly 10 years, I was in and out of jobs, moving from company to company, moving between different roles from research to trading to sales. It started a thought in my head about what could be possible if I was to start working for myself. And it also got me questioning those beliefs that I had held for so long in my life that success was defined by my job title. In fact, I started to question what success meant for me. Where did those beliefs come from? I think it was probably from family and and school because, mm-hmm. you, you know, I, I was in a position in which nobody in my direct family had, had started and scaled a successful business. And so everybody went down the traditional route of working working as an employee in the company. And and so naturally I would not have known any better because that's that's what I grew up seeing around me. And when I was at school, I remember the careers advisor that we had who was helping us fill in these forms when we were applying to university. It was always about, well, what career are you thinking about going into? And because at the uh, at the canteen table, all of my fellow students were talking about who was going to be going to this university to study medicine, who was going to go here to study economics, I was naturally influenced by uh, by the choices that other people were making. And again, because I was not exposed to any other option, uh, that for me was what determined my view of the uh, of the world when it came to success. And what was the moment when you started to shift your thinking from, you know, this is the right thing to do. I've, you know, studied economics at university. I've gone into banking. You start ticking over. Maybe there's something different. When, when, when you think back, when was the first time you were thinking like that? I think it would have been shortly after I started to question whether I wanted to build a career in finance after the crisis, because before that moment, every day I was working alongside people in finance. After work, I would be going drinking with people in finance. And on weekends, I would be socializing with people in finance. So my, my bubble was very, was very small uh, in, in, in terms of my thinking. And so once the crisis occurred, I started to question, well, what else is there? What else could I explore? What else could I be doing with my life if it wasn't going to be in the financial services sector? And so I think that once I started to attend seminars, uh, workshops, read different books, hang around different communities and groups, that's when I started to realize that that success could be defined by something entirely different. Because here were some individuals who had not necessarily qualified with a university degree, earning very attractive sums of money running their own business. And that got me questioning whether the path I was on was really what I had thought it to be. Uh, and and it, it began a big shift in my thinking. And talk to me more about the Simon outside of the finance world. So what, what other things did you do when you were growing up? What you were interested in? What, what other activities did you do? What kind of thinker were you when you were growing up? So I was 
I was a very uh, deep thinker. I, I guess what I mean by that, Gary, is I was very stereotypically Chinese in the sense that I was your hardworking student. I was very shy, highly introverted, which when I share with audiences now, many people can't uh, can't believe it because obviously I speak on many stages now. I do lots of uh, videos and interviews, but when I was growing up, I was very shy, introverted, and hardworking. And so I would prefer to sit at the back of the room, to focus on my homework, to focus on my studies rather than socializing and hanging out with the uh, the, the the cool boys and girls, if you will, on the weekends out in the fields playing sports. And so that was me growing up. I, I was very shy and introverted, which, which helped in terms of my academic grades and helped me to get to some good schools. But for me, it's, uh, it changed when I went to university because I was the only one from my school to go to the university that I went to. I went to the London School of Economics. And because I was shy and introverted uh, throughout, throughout my childhood and throughout my teenage years, it meant that when my when my mum passed away when I was seventeen, it got me even further into my shell, because mm. this was a this was a time of the world in which mental health wasn't really spoken much about, and there were no there were no resources to a seventeen year old on how to respond and, and manage a situation like that, and mm. being a being a guy, you, you know, lots of people would naturally say, "Man up." move on, don't cry, bounce back without any regard to the emotional roller coaster that can come with losing someone so close to you. So that moved me even further inwards. And in a way, although I didn't like being the only student from my secondary school to go to university, because usually there were at least two or three of you that would go to the same university. So you had some sort of foundation where you knew a couple of friends already. I went to my university not knowing anybody but in a way, I think it helped because I had this blank canvas, Gary, where I could now create new friendship circles and network with new people who never knew about my background, who didn't know the old Simon. And it took me another year until I could open up uh, more about what happened with, uh, with, with my mum. And that accelerated when I joined the... Uh, when I joined the drama society at university and I deliberately joined that actually, because once I realized that I had to present more at university as part of the, uh, as part of the courses, I knew that I hated presenting because I never really presented growing up. And so I thought that by joining the drama society, it would challenge me and push me out of my comfort zone because I now had to rehearse with other people to then go onto stage and perform in front of an audience. And, and for me, that really helped to get me out of my shell, to get me to express more of my feelings, uh, my emotions, and how I wanted to share my insights with an audience. And the other thing where it really accelerated, Gary, was after I met my now wife uh, in, in my final year of university, she really helped to open me up. And then when I transitioned out of the corporate world into entrepreneurship, I knew that unless I could sell myself, unless I could be the voice of my business, it would be very difficult to develop a thriving career in what I wanted to do. And so in a way, there was no option. I had to become a better public speaker in order to share my work and talk about the value that I could bring into the lives of others. 
And it's so interesting because I'm, you know, I mean, I, I'm reasonably familiar, but it'd be great for you to bring to life a little bit of, of what's, what's the cultural environment of being in a bank, you know, mm. and, and in that sort of investment banking environment. And how is that, how does that compare with the cultural environment that you're in today in the work that you do now? <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining, I mean, it's, it's, it's like chalk and cheese, but, but, you know, I'm imagining that Simon coming out of university, going into the investment banking community, that's a very particular culture and environment that you were going into. It's, it, it was a very particular culture environment. You're right, Gary. And, and also, even if you compare the environment from the investment banking world then to today, it's massively different as well. I remember recently I, I delivered a talk at Barclays uh, over in Canary Wharf here in the UK. Mm-hmm. And now they have committees such as a wellbeing committee. Now, if you go back to when I joined the industry back in 2007, you would have been laughed out of the building for suggesting such an idea of having a wellbeing committee. Because I went onto the, uh, on, onto the trading floor and it was very much what you would see in those films like Wall Street uh, or the Wolf of Wall Street with Leonardo DiCaprio. There was lots of shouting. It was very, um, very male-dominant behavior, if you will, uh, in which it was about getting every sale. It was about making the most money. And there was no place to understand, well, how are you feeling? It was either you succeeded or you didn't. And if you didn't, you were yelled at, you were shouted at, and they would very quickly want you out of the team. And Mm -hmm. so it was very alpha male driven in, in, in that culture. Of course, I think today the environment has massively changed. And I think that's also been a result of the fact that they've been losing a lot of talent in that industry to the startup industry. And so they've had to have some sort of cultural shift. But back then it was it was very cutthroat and it was very intense uh, in terms of the environment you were walking into. Mm. I remember talking to one of my former colleagues in, in, in the uh, retail and uh, consumer banking space, um, and they they worked for a, quite a traditional bank that was acquired by Klarna, um, and so moving into that kind of tech led financial services space where so they didn't wear suits, mm. and for the people coming from the traditional banking environment, that was a really radical thing. And then they said, "Well, we don't have an org structure either. Everyone works in in dynamic, agile squads and teams." You know, it's really interesting, and and, and I laughed slightly when you said well being committee. Because, precisely because it's so the right answer, mm. but it's so radically different. And when you say 2007, like like it's 1922, you know, it's like it feels like you know a, a generations ago. But actually, it was really recent. You know, we're, we're not mm. talking very long ago that it was still very much like that. And I'm sure there's sure there's still change to go. Mm. But I think when you were talking, I'm thinking there's a lot of people that were probably quite severely broken by being spat out at the bottom of that kind of culture. Like in those days, you didn't make it, you know, there wasn't a soft landing for you somewhere, I didn't think. Not at all. I mean, I still remember in the, in the final few weeks that Lehman was still alive before it fell into bankruptcy in September 2008. I remember walking into the office on Monday and the way that they got rid of you, if you were made redundant, was brutal. I mean, you would walk into the office on a Monday morning and somebody that you were working next to you would look at his or her desk and suddenly it would just be empty. But you have no idea what happened. And there wasn't such a thing as at, at the time as a leaving do because, well, they've really left. They've been kicked out of the building, their security pass has been revoked, and you never see them again in the office. And so it was very 
cutthroat, very brutal, very extreme. When you think about how people are laid off today, it's a, it's a lot more nicer how they're laid off today compared to how it was back then. And it was really my second experience in the world of finance. I moved after Lehman Brothers to a hedge fund. And that really took its toll on me physically, mentally, and spiritually. And, and that for me was, was a big turning moment to start addressing my health because I was getting little sleep. I was surviving on junk food and takeaways and I wasn't really exercising. And, and so seeing the impact that it had on my body and my mind started to tell me this wasn't for me. And, and so I can relate to many people who have gone through that and have changed their career choices or changed their lifestyle as a result of what happened. And it's really powerful hearing your lived experience of going through this kind of thing. It makes much more sort of coherent sense why you are who you are today and mm. why the narrative that you have, why the messages you're giving are the ones that they are. It's, mm. You haven't made it up. It's, it's, it comes from, from, from you. And, and that's, I think that's, that's really powerful. So, so one of the things, I mean, we're going to come on and talk much more about the book. I'd love mm. to hear more about the book that's coming out, but the the heart of this conversation is about this idea of an unlock moment and 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 that's a a sort of flash of clarity when you suddenly figured out the right path ahead and i know we talked a little bit before before we started recording so bring us into that moment of of the point where you saw your future ahead of you where were you and what was happening for you at that time sure so i guess in the build up to this so called unlock moment when i realized that I wanted to do something outside of the corporate world, i.e. not become an employee anymore, but to pursue something that I could do for myself. So I could become my own boss, if you will. I followed my curiosity. I got involved in a couple of businesses. They didn't work out for the obvious reason that I wasn't passionate enough about them and I wasn't committed to them. And then I remember going to this event held in East London at the Excel Center. Uh, it was organized by a company called Success Resources, and it was called National Achievers Congress. It was a three-day event, Friday to Sunday, with speakers such as Tony Robbins, Donald Trump, before he became president, uh, and a series of other well-known individuals within the business and entrepreneurial scenes. And so my wife and I went only for day one, actually. We just went to the first day because we mainly went because Tony Robbins was speaking. And we knew he was speaking on the first morning uh, of the first the first day, uh, as well as a number of other speakers that we followed. And as we sat in the audience, I was watching him do his thing, moving around the stage, coming into the audience. And in my mind, I started to imagine myself also being on stage, of sharing my story, sharing my experience with the audience. And I found myself, rather than listening to his content, which many people did, they came to hear his content, I became very curious about how he did what he did. So while everybody was writing notes about beliefs and identity and action, I was actually writing down questions and thoughts such as, how did he start that talk? How did he end that talk? How many stories did he use? What particular story did he use? Was it a personal story, a case study, or a professional story? At what point did he walk into the audience? So I became so fascinated about the mechanics of how he was doing what he was doing that it made me want to explore more within this field. And it was that exposure that then got me to want to pursue a qualification in coaching 
And then, as you know, Gary, the rest is history because then things just started building from there. It's amazing. And, and, and it's interesting when, when you're describing that. You didn't go for the purpose of diagnosing how he does what he does. You went to listen to him mm. for, his, for his content. But when you were there in that moment, actually what you're thinking about dialing into is how is he doing this? Mm. Uh, and describe the room. You know, how many people were in the room? What was the what was the atmosphere like? What was the energy like when you were in that moment of sort of that sudden pivot in your thinking? <laughs> well, I don't know if any of the listeners have been to a Tony Robbins event, but if you have, you already know that the atmosphere is electric. Uh, he's got a great way of building the audience up, which is something that I learned actually from how he runs events. Is how do you build the energy up in the audience before you even get on stage? And everybody was, was engaged. Everybody was present because he had a way of hooking you on every word that he said. And that's why it got me so curious. How was he doing this? How was he able to do the things he was doing? But yet the other speakers that came on stage after him just couldn't live up to the same, the same standard he had set. And that's why it got me even more curious because after the second speaker came on, the third speaker came on, my wife and I looked at each other and said, shall we call it a day now? Because I think we've got all we needed from the first speaker. And, and that just set me on a path of learning. I wanted to learn how that was possible. And, and in a way, uh, it, it's some of the things I share in the book, Energize. You know, there's a certain energy that we transmit when we speak, when we perform, when we share our ideas that the audience feels. And you can't you can't describe it in words, but you just come out and saying, wow, that was an experience. Uh, and it's a feeling you get. And I wanted to understand how we could, how we could get to that point. And what did it tell you about you that your response to that, hearing that talk was, I want to go and do something like that? I, I think I take it as a, as a sign from the universe that maybe at the time I wasn't on the right path and that here was the universe almost giving me a sign that those curiosities you're having right now, Simon, those questions you're having, there's a reason why you're interested in those mechanics. There's a reason why you're interested in how this particular individual is doing it. Your challenge is to go and explore if you accept this path. And that is exactly what I started doing. And it's, I'm not going to lie, Gary's been an incredible journey since then. And I look back at that moment and think, wow, what would life have been if I didn't accept that challenge? You know, simply by accepting it, it literally reshaped my future and, and changed the person that I was. And how long has that been? You know, how long ago is it that we're talking that, that, you, that you had that experience with Tony Robbins? So we're talking about a, about a decade ago now, a decade ago plus, nice. uh, because shortly after that, I then signed up uh, to, to study for my coaching qualifications in 2012. Hmm. So I started there and it was around 18 to 20 months or so after I started that I qualified. And then it would take me another few years before I would hand in my resignation at the job I was in at the time and say, you know what, I'm going to go my own path and see what's going to happen uh, by becoming an entrepreneur. So it's actually 10 plus years since I was at that event, 
that I'm now here speaking with you, Gary. Yeah. So, so it was an immediate response, really, that it was the beginning of that journey. Mm. And then over a few years, you built into the, this, this is my full-time focus and endeavor. Yeah, and yeah. that process took a few years for a reason because I'm naturally very risk-averse. And so for me, I'm not the sort of person that will burn all the boats and go, okay, I'm going to jump straight into this, even though there's no revenue, even though I have no idea what I'm doing and there's no plan. For me, I like to see some sort of uh, some sort of feedback that this path could work. And so for me, it was about building a bridge, if you will, from where I was to where I wanted to be. And in the final job I had, I felt like Superman, if you were, without the superpower. So I was going into the office, nice iron white shirt, tie and suit jacket. And in my gym bag, I would have my now customary black t-shirt and jeans. And so when I had a potential client I was going to meet or an event that I, that I had signed up to attend, I would very quickly leave my desk, go into the toilet cubicle, change out of my suit into my black t-shirt and jeans and run to that event or meeting that I had scheduled. And so I was living this double life uh, for a couple of years until I started to get paying clients. And once I started to get paying clients, it then pushed me, Gary, into this situation where I had to make a choice. Either I continue with my day job and I cap my clients to just free clients because I could not take on any more given I was still working for a company or I quit the daytime job and I shift a hundred percent of my energy into working on this business. So when that time came, I'm not going to lie. It took me a number of weeks to finally decide that I was going to choose the latter option to hand in my resignation and go down the path of entrepreneurship because there's a big difference between having an employee mindset versus an entrepreneur mindset. And because I'd never been an entrepreneur before, it was going to be a big change. But once I handed in that resignation, I had a feeling inside of me like butterflies in your stomach of excitement that this was now the path I was going to go on, that this was the path that was going to be the most meaningful to me. I love that. And, and I love how you describe it so vividly, what it feels like to be in that point, because and almost all entrepreneurs have that moment, unless you've got a trust fund or a lottery win behind you, there's a moment where you go, you know, my life would be more stable and certain if I stay in the mm. in employment and you know, with the salary and all the benefits and all those kinds of things. And actually, I'm going, no, I'm going to take a risk and back myself to do what I'm going to do. So, so the book is called Energize, and there's been this journey around the theme of energy. And you've, I know you've, you've talked a lot about that topic. So talk to me about at what point and, and how did energy become something that was a real hot topic for you to focus your, 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 your narrative on? Sure. Well, when I was reflecting on what to write about for, for the book, Gary, there were a number of ideas that came up. And the reason that energy stuck with me and just to give you a bit of behind the scenes, actually, when I wrote the original proposal to submit to the publisher, the working title was actually Energy is Everything. And then as I started writing, as we edited the material, we then reduced the length of the title to just Energize because we felt it was more action-oriented. And so the reason I wrote it from that lens is because, one, my own personal experience of going through a period of my life post the financial crisis where I literally had no energy. I was exhausted. I was tired. I was drained 
from working in something that wasn't fulfilling, yet demanded so much from me physically and mentally. And I wanted to share how addressing that energy deficit can give us the foundation for creating our best lives. Because once I started to work on my physical energy, once I started to work towards something meaningful and master my own emotions and mindset, things just started aligning in a way that I could never have imagined. So that's one of the reasons. Secondly, is when I started speaking on stages, I would often get people coming up to me after I would walk off the stage saying, Simon, I loved your energy while you're on stage. You know what? If I could have just a small percentage of the energy you have, I could go on and achieve so much of my goals. So that's the second reason. And the third is when I was looking at some of the most successful leaders and thinkers in the world, I noticed that they were not necessarily the smartest or the fastest at what they do, but they were the best in terms of managing their energy so that they could thrive rather than just survive. They knew that if they were always feeling exhausted, they can't possibly show up as their best selves each day. And if you have a vision or a goal that is big and bold, you are going to need a lot of energy to make that happen. And so bringing those three things together made me want to write the book through the lens of, well, if we understand how to manage our energy better, we would transform the way we live and work. It's really interesting. So who's the book for? Who's, who's, your, who's the reader of, of, of Energize? It's interesting, Gary, because when I was writing this book, I was constantly thinking about, well, who would I be writing this to so that I can visualize him or her in front of my mind as I was writing the book over the last two years? And it's funny because the person that came straight into my mind as I was writing the book was the me in 2009, just after the financial crisis. And so I felt like as I was writing the book, I was writing it for me back then, the person that was exhausted, the person that was feeling a little lost in life, and the person that felt they needed some inspiration and motivation to discover what their purpose was, to discover what they're meant to do. And so that's the person I started off with, Gary. Now, as I started writing, then, of course, other audiences came into my mind as I moved from chapter to chapter, part to part. But for me, for most of the early part of the writing, that was the person that I was writing to. That's really interesting. You're talking to yourself. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it's, in, you know, I mean, you know this also as, as, as an experienced coach too, that that ability to be very self-reflective as, mm. as your writing is really powerful. And I think that will also come through in your speaking too, because there's so many people out there who will stand on stage and spout stuff mm. that they've seen on YouTube, and then they can say it to other people too with energy. And the reason it doesn't land is because it's not real. It's not mm. authentic. It's not, you know, it's not meaningful from them. Mm. So I, I love that, you know, you're sitting there thinking, I wish this book had been around for me in 2009 yeah. is a way of saying it, isn't it? Um, Definitely. So, and, and what kind of book is it? What's the, what's the experience of, of, of reading Energized? Sure. So in, in my journey in the personal development field, Gary, I've been influenced by, by so many books. 
and and styles that I've resonated with. So we've got on the one hand the likes of the Go Giver, the Alchemist, uh, Robin Sharma's books, which are very narrative driven and and story led. And on the other hand, we've got the more academic and practical books, such as Adam Grant's work, Daniel Pink's work, and and Simon Sinek's work. So for me, I wanted to blend those influences because I love storytelling. I'm a speaker. I love sharing stories. I love extracting lessons from stories. So I wanted to blend that element as well as the more practical part because I'm a coach. You know, I started my journey as a coach. And so I wanted to give the readers exercises and activities and questions for them to reflect on their own journey. And so for me, I blended the two, created a narrative through the book. So the first part is about how we can awaken that energy inside of us. The second is how we can rewire our energetic state. The third is about how we protect our personal energy. And the fourth part is about how we can then supercharge our life. And by and large, that is a reflection of my own journey uh, from going as a graduate at Lehman Brothers, all the way to now being a coach, a speaker, an author. And so I wanted to take them on that journey of what I had learned, but also the process I went through that they can apply in their own in their own journey. And where do you sit on the kind of spectrum from, you know, some people are really focused on your daily habits and your daily routine. And then there's other people that are really focused on some very big picture thinking. Where are you on that spectrum? It's interesting because for me, I, w- I would probably say I'm a bit of both. Um, and then there's a reason why, because I think without the big vision, you have no context for today's actions. You, you know, you don't know where you're going so well, any action you can go ahead and do because you don't really know where it's going to lead to. So for me, I think we need a vision that is compelling and magnetic because that's what's going to pull us forward. That's what's going to get us up in the morning and excited about the day ahead. So. For me, that's the purpose of having a vision, which is is absolutely necessary. Now, once you have that, for me, the paradox is once you know what it is you want to put it to one side, and that's where you then focus on your, your habits and your rituals, because then it's about getting a system in place that makes that vision inevitable. So I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for both, but for me, I think I, I sort of believe in the input of both of these ideas. You need the vision, but then once you have the vision, put it to one side and focus on the habits because now you've got context for what habits are going to be essential for you to make that progress. I love that when you said, make your vision inevitable. I mm. think that's a really nice <laughs> phrase. I love it. Um, the, a couple of things that I, you sent me very kindly, a, a little sort of extracts from the book, and there were a couple of things that that said that I'd love to dig into more. The first of them is, um, you were talking about why an eternal student mindset matters. Can you bring that to life a little bit for us? Sure. So what I've come to understand is that often in life, people will arrive at a destination. So let's say that's becoming CEO of a company that's getting a, a million dollars in, in revenue for your business. That is becoming a world champion in the in, in the field of sports that you operate in. But what tends to happen after that is quite interesting because then people tend to become complacent. They take their foot off the pedal and it's why it's easier to win that first title than it is to retain it again and again and again because we relax. We forget how we got there. And for me, that's when I, that's when I wanted to understand, well, what made the difference between people that could sustain that 
across many years, often their entire lifetime, versus those who were one-hit wonders, who achieved incredible successes yet disappeared from the radar. And for me, it came down to this fact that they were eternal students, that they were always learning. And it's something that I've embraced as part of my journey. Uh, Gary, one of the questions I often get asked is, is where do you think, you know, what do you think, Simon, about where you are right now? Do you think you're kind of there in, in terms of whatever there means for you? And I say to them, you know, the truth is, I feel like I still am just getting started. And I think that's the feeling you get when you are an internal student, because you're learning something different every year. You have this excitement and thirst to acquire more knowledge and information, which makes you feel you're always just getting started. And also the fact is the world is always changing. And so even just five years ago, if I were to launch a book, I would not have heard of the term metaverse. But now today in 2022, I'm now talking to someone about doing a book launch in the metaverse. And I'm going to be honest with you, Gary, I don't know much about the metaverse, but because I'm an internal student, I'm learning about it as I go along. And so that's why I feel like I'm still just getting started because there is so much more to learn. We had um, uh, my, my wife's cousin and her boyfriend staying with us over New Year. And they're in their early 20s and into all of this kind of stuff. I think he's a, he's a um, tech developer. And it's the first time in, in my life that anybody's ever said to me, I'm really sorry, I'm in the other room in the metaverse. And that, and I was like, okay, I remember that sentence. That was the first time that's ever come up in conversation. So, so the other, the other statement that, that was in, in the content you sent through, which fascinated me as a, as a, as an ex doctor was how to bend our reality by becoming our own placebo. Mm. I was like, I have no idea what that means. And I'd love you to, to bring that to life. Sure. So in terms of the concept of bending our reality, it begins with an appreciation that there is no one reality. Now, what I mean by this is that we all live in customized realities. So when an event happens, your interpretation of that will be very different to mine, very different to my partners and different to my friends. But that tells us something very profound. It tells us that reality is simply us living in the feeling of our thinking moment to moment to moment. So it is actually our thinking that creates the landscape of our reality. Now, if that is true, what that means is that we actually own a very powerful superpower, which is the fact that at any given moment, you and I can choose a different thought, and that new thought redesigns our reality. So if you were to experience an event and initially you think it is bad, you are going to choose a set of actions and behaviors based on that feeling of that event is bad. But if you being more conscious about what happened, decide to change your response to actually this event could be good, then guess what? The choices and behaviors you now make will be very different. And so this is what I mean about the concept of bending our reality is the fact that because we can choose new thought at any moment, we can literally change the way we perceive our reality and how we go ahead in terms of our actions and behaviors. Now, Talking about the second part of that statement about be your own placebo, what I mean about this is that we know in the, medicine, the, the medical field that a placebo is the belief that something is going to work. So if somebody gives you a sugar pill and tells you this is going to cure you or this will make this ailment better, 
if we marry that belief with, uh, with the environment that this is going to happen, this is a definite certainty, what scientists have found is that very often people can feel better simply through the power of belief. So when I talk about be your own placebo, it's really about the fact that when we live in our reality, it is mostly driven by the blueprint of our belief system. And as we get wiser, we begin to understand that nearly every single belief we hold has been made up, has been made up by someone else. And so once we appreciate that, we can choose a new set of beliefs. And when we do, that is how we become our own placebo, because we're literally giving ourselves these belief pills to take, and that changes our reality. And so there's a word that I share in the book, which means the opposite of paranoia. Paranoia is the belief that some people have that the world is against them, that the world is out to get them in some way, that they're not meant to succeed. The opposite word to paranoia is pronoia. It is the belief that the universe is conspiring in your favor, that life is working for you and not against you. And so here's a thought for, for the listeners. Imagine from today onwards that you saw life as working for you and not against you. What could that do for you? So if something unexpected happened, but you worked off the belief that life is working for you, your mind is now looking for the lesson. Your mind is now looking for the opportunity as a result of something unexpected. And this is how you become your own placebo and bend your reality. It's so interesting. And as you tell that story, I'm imagining you in, in the audience. In, you, know, you, you showed up to learn something from Tony Robbins, but what you learned was not what you were expecting to learn. Mm. And it changed your life. Indeed. And it's very interesting. Yeah, very, very interesting. So where can people find out more about you and where can they uh, where can they buy the book? Sure. So you can order the book at getenergizedbook.com. That is energize with a Z. It's also available on Amazon and all good bookstores. And if you'd like to get in touch, I'm on all the major social media platforms, but the two that I am most active on are Instagram and LinkedIn. On LinkedIn, just search Simon Alexander Ong. On Instagram, my handle is at Simon Alexander O. Fantastic. And, and the book's available in what formats? So it is available in paperback, uh, on ebook, or audio. So and whatever your preference is, uh, you should be able to find it. Fantastic. And the audio book is you. You've, you've, you've recorded it yourself. Definitely. So, you know, if you want to hear my voice in your ears for nearly 10 hours, then uh, <laughs> do check out the audio book. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Simon. That, that's really great. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For Simon, it was sitting in the audience at the National Achievers Congress, listening to the world's best inspirational speakers and imagining himself up there on stage. It started a 10-year journey of discovery and growth. In his new book, Energize, Simon introduces you to the art and science of energy management in a world where we are always on, Simon coaches you to work with your natural energy resources to recognize your most energized state, when to push and when to recoup, so that you can work sustainably towards your biggest goals. I've already got Energize on pre-order and I can't wait to read it. Be sure to order your copy today. We'll have a link in the show notes. Simon, thank you so much for joining me on The Unlock Moment. Gary, thank you for having me on your show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. 
This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset, available in physical book, ebook, and audiobook formats. Follow me on Instagram and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Join me again soon.